Assalamu alaikum, good morning, and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past ten on today, Sunday the 27th of November 2022. My name is Ahmad Khan, I'm going to be your host for the next two hours, live on Weekend World. On Weekend World, we go behind uh, the headlines and we talk about the week's news, and I'm very, very lucky to be joined by some uh, regular contributors uh, uh, this morning and um, uh, Dr. Aleem, uh, Dr. Abdul Aleem, Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for joining us this morning. And we also have uh, Khalil Yusuf. Uh, Khalil is going to uh, join us at 11 o'clock uh, for some ongoing discussion of the week's news. And uh, uh, thank you, Khalil. And uh, we'll speak to you at, at 11 o'clock. Um, Dr. Aleem, thank you very much for um, uh, joining us this morning. There's been, I mean, for those of us who don't actively follow football, and I, I include myself in, in, that, uh, in that group, every four years uh, or so, uh, there, there is the World Cup. And, um, and the World Cup is an excuse for even those of us that, that, that don't really actively uh, follow football to get a little bit excited about um grown men running around a field uh, chasing after a leather ball and uh, and obviously it's a, a thankfully a, a, a useful proxy of um, of what uh, might otherwise be skirmishes in real life uh, uh, perhaps an opportunity for for nations to prove themselves on the world stage um, there is though in this World Cup something quite unique the World Cup is being held in a Muslim country in Qatar but it's also been the cause of some um a lot a lot of noise being made because of perceived uh problems with Qatar being the host of the world cup um a lot of which seem to center around the fact that um fans who are visiting Qatar are being uh, somehow restricted in their ability to do what they normally would um, at regular uh, football matches and and a perception that the cultural differences between the vast majority of visitors and people who enjoy football and and the culture within Qatar is is problematic so for instance the banning of alcohol in the main stadium the fact that the uh, Qatar authorities have requested um, those who are visiting to to behave uh, in uh, in a modest way um, and and to not make too much noise, not be not be rowdy, and to and to dress in a modest way, as the the culture in Qatar um, would uh, um, would have for for most people. They 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 see that as as problematic because you can't enforce the culture of another people on um, uh, on uh, visitors from from outside. Um, this is others have commented that this is problematic because it it's essentially trying to enforce the the cultural norms or cultural rules uh, of outsiders uh, on on a particular nation but um in many ways uh, dr Lim, this is this is not something new uh, for for anyone that knows anything of history then we can see that that uh, for the for the last many hundreds, if not thousands, of years, um, those who see themselves in a um, in a position of power um, uh, are often seen to be enforcing their own cultural norms uh, on other people, and 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 perhaps especially for Western nations who've had a history of uh, cultural um, and and um, uh, 
otherwise imperialism uh, around the world, they uh, they have an assumption that their particular worldview is the is the best worldview, um, and that uh, anyone else must either um, believe that that worldview is correct and be and be um, acting um, in accordance with that worldview, or at the very least be moving towards it and and be uh, going to a state where they. Uh, they themselves will will also attain this this uh, uh, particular way of acting and behaving and this particular way of of um, observing the world. So it might come as a as a little bit of a shock uh, to some people in in um, the Western world in the in the northern uh, rich economies um, uh, to to understand that there are some people in the world who perhaps don't align their own cultural norms with theirs. Indeed, um, I think that uh, historically we would have to, you know, go back a little bit about um, how this, perhaps, a sense of um, cultural dominance where it comes from, and that has to do, of course, with a long period of colonial uh, history and colonial plunder by uh, parts of the world over the other parts of the world, and we see many industrialized countries now, which um, have an advanced capitalist model who have. Uh, who went around for over uh, three or four hundred years in uh, in and around the world, um, plundering the indigenous wealth of those countries. Uh, they were, of course, involved also in destroying many local cultures. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we have to also um, agree with the fact that this, this, this that come did come from a superior uh, um, principle of organization, which was that societies were organized around. Uh, capitalist uh, uh, incentive and around uh, the institution of nation state, which proved to be a very effective and powerful tool of mobilizing people into productive um, uh, organisms. Uh, and that allowed uh, the, the industrialized uh, countries to actually go around and uh, uh, try and implement that model uh, over other countries. Uh, so, yes, partly I think some of these countries uh, which uh, have this advanced uh, capitalist model uh, owe it to their own labor, but part of it also has to do overwhelmingly with uh, the history of plunder of developing countries. And I think that it comes from uh, a process of otherization where you feel that uh, since you have a larger or a higher organizing principle that has yielded um, wealth over uh, a couple of centuries, uh, you have the right to see other people as not as uh, competent or uh, or equal in terms of their ability to produce as much as you do. Um, and I think that otherization that allows uh, some measure of violence, some measure of arrogance, um, and uh, the fact that uh, one is entitled to criticize other people for uh, being different. Um, but Let's also agree to a certain extent that part of the malaise that uh, that we find in what we call developing countries is also to do with their own local cultures and uh, being in a model of colonial extraction that was put in place by the withdrawing uh, colonial powers. So I think that also has to that also does play with that. But uh, but Qatar is sort of an exception in in many of the other Muslim countries now are an exception to the rule. Because Qatar has the highest per capita income in the world, actually. Um, so initially, some of this uh, uh, criticism came from 
very different aspects. Uh, for instance, uh, when Qatar won the 2010 uh, bid uh, in 2010 for 2022, some of the earliest criticisms were about the fact that uh, this is a two, this is a very small country. Uh, it doesn't have a football culture. It's environmentally, uh, you know, producing uh, uh, using hydrocarbon extraction and export around the world to uh, generate its wealth. And all of those, uh, you know, were of course uh, not uh, entirely without merit, but also could not stand uh, over the last ten years. So I think that uh, uh, I think that um, uh, the understanding that much of culture that is produced by the Western capitalist domination is superior and is supposed to be implemented or imposed on other countries is part of that uh, old historical process. Thank you, Dr. Lehman. And I guess there's a, a, a fair bit to unpack in all of that in relation to um, the World Cup. I mean, it's it's there's an old joke about American football, and and they have the um, the World Championship uh, of American football, where it, for the most part it's it's American uh, teams who are who are playing in that, and uh, and uh, whoever wins is regarded as the world champion. Um, but there's very few other countries, and 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 an idea that uh, American football is is therefore. Um, uh, owned by America, but Americans somehow think that um, that just because they do their own special thing, they are they are the champions at it, world champions at it. Um, and and similarly for football, there's a question of question of ownership here. There's no there's no question in this that that football was a, a sport that was developed um, in in the Western world. Um, and um, uh, you know, historically, we can we can get into it. But for instance, the United Kingdom probably has a pretty good good claim or England has a pretty good claim as being the originators of the sport of football football is however played all over the world that there's a there's a sense that with with that transference of the game of football around the world that somehow um western nations still still own it or still own the right to be able to to dictate um the the rules of the game not just within the game itself but around the game and everything to do with uh, the way in which it's played and the way in which the world cup um happens as well and 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 that sense of um uh, an almost an arrogance which says that um you you either play by the rules that we define or 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 you don't play at all is 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 perhaps um, the the ultimate example of the way in which this sort of form of cultural imperialism um, uh, shows itself, and as you said, there there is there are problems. There are certainly problems within many of the developing nations, which um, it, you, we we can't be in a position where um, we can't um, criticize those nations for the problems that they have, or, or be able to point those problems out. I guess the, the the critics would say that um, why is it that commentators in the West find it so easy to sit and criticize a country like Qatar for perceived issues to do with their culture and, and, and the way in which they behave, and yet their own countries have got many, many of the same issues, if not worse issues. Let, let's take alcohol as an example. Probably many people 
whatever the problems one might see um, in the Muslim world, probably many, many people would say that actually if alcohol was banned, for instance, in, in the UK, then it would be a huge boon, both um, socially, economically, and from a health perspective. We know that alcohol is the cause of huge amounts of health issues. We know that it's the cause of huge amounts of social issues. Domestic violence is fueled by alcohol. Um, issues of violence on the street um, are fueled by alcohol. Um, violence against women, um, uh, both physical and sexual violence against, against women, are worsened by alcohol. That's not to say that these issues aren't real or prevalent in many parts of the developing world. Um, that, that, is, that is not the case. Uh, but alcohol makes all of these things worse. And um, it would be very easy for many Muslim countries or countries where alcohol is banned to, to look down on countries in the Western world and say, well, it's, it's um, simply morally unacceptable for a, a so-called developed country or a country that regards themselves as civilized um, to allow people to freely drink alcohol because of all of the social ills um, uh, that it creates. And, and, and as such, you, know, you, can, you can take any one of 100 examples of cultural differences and start to point towards um, this being superior and that su being superior. But it, I guess it's the, the consequences and what it means because the suggestion being that it is problematic that the World Cup is being held in Qatar. Um, as people have put it, it, it leaves a bitter taste in the mouth. Well, uh, I, can, I can only imagine the bitter taste that it must leave in the mouth of, of many, many people when the World Cup is being held, say, for instance, in the United States with, with their history of uh, uh, violent attacks against, against many countries around the world, illegal invasions of sovereign nations, etc. Um, and, and the World Cup is going to be held in the United States the next time around. So, so there's, uh, this is an extremely pro problematic um, worldview when individuals make make this sort of um, claim that oh uh, you know it should never have been held in Qatar because Qatar has got all of these has got all of these problems. Um, yes, um, I think that uh, we need to um, sort of thread it a, a bit more, as you say. Um, I think that when we talk about culture, uh, we need to also think about. Uh, how over the last hundred years um, culture has been dominated by uh, commercialization. Um, we know that there is, of course, a huge phenomena in parts of the world where religion is commercialized. In many parts of the world, religion is politicized and commercialized for the purpose of the gain for the greed or for, uh, for getting uh, large markets of consumers. I also think that um, in many parts of the what we call the Western world or advanced economy, uh, this is no longer about culture. This is more about uh, commercial interests and uh, business interests. Um, so, as you were saying, um, like in the case of the U.S. and the previous World Cup was hosted by, uh, you know, the Olympics was hosted by the Chinese and, of course, before that by the Russians, the people was held by Russia. But none of these criticisms were actually leveled at Russia or China when uh, you actually had a huge amount of issues on human rights in these countries too. Because I think the companies, the commercial companies that were benefiting from the FIFA World Cup were actually able to partake well from those profits. I think this is for the first time that uh, the FIFA World Cup actually has moved from 
being a summer event into a, a winter event because of the climate issue in Qatar. Uh, in Qatar, you cannot really hold a football tournament in summer because it's just sizzling hot. So one of the biggest revenue losses that the Western companies actually had had to do with uh, the change of the season and the, and the holding of the FIFA World Cup in winter. That was the first issue. When uh, this bid was successful, it was immediately raised as one of the major points. The second point here is that uh, uh, Qatar actually is one of the few countries in the Muslim world which holds on its own with having independent media. So we know very well that Al Jazeera has uh, now a large, a large amount of influence in the Arab world and fact, around the world. Uh, and B in sports, which is also which also originates in in Qatar, uh, holds the broadcasting rights for most of these World Cup uh, fixtures. Uh, so I think that uh, part of the um, uh, distress that we heard from many countries, including the UK, the Danes, the De- Denmark, um, and even France, had to do with uh, some of these commercial interests being hurt. Not so much to do with uh, cultural hegemony, perhaps, uh, because as we know that in many cases, uh, some of these uh, slogans of uh, Qatar being Muslim and Arab are raised to uh, create a hoax or or create a situation where uh, there is underlying protest that we were not given what uh, was our due in the sense that we have been enormously met, uh, benefiting from uh, the commercial part of the uh, FIFA World Cup. Uh, so I think that um, if you if you uh, look at the history, about 22 uh, World Cups, uh, football World Cups have been held, and out of that, 11 were held in, in European countries, in fact. Mm. Only 50% of those were outside Europe, and, and most of them were uh, in Latin America after uh, Europe, and then one was only in Africa. Uh, one was uh, in Asia, and now this is the first one in the Middle East uh, in in, uh, in a Muslim Arab country. Uh, and I think that uh, that uh, creates a level of shift in commercial interests, and and of course the uh, you know the gains that can be made from such a large event, uh, which partly play a role in raising of uh, specifically human rights concerns in this case, which I think uh, to a certain extent could have been addressed in a different way if there were uh, some human rights issues like, for example, the workers' rights, which I believe were quite uh, well addressed by the Qatar government. Uh, so I think that, um, unfortunately, uh, much of the religious or cultural biases that we see nowadays are rooted in, most likely, to my understanding, in commercial interests. And uh, that also plays a part in what you were mentioning about the allowance of alcohol in, in uh, advanced countries. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately describing these countries as not Christian or Judeo-Christian countries. I'm just saying advanced economic economy countries because I think to a certain extent, uh, the allowance of alcohol, which is classified as a drug, as a category four drug, um, also has to do with uh, a culture of, uh, creating a culture of consumerism and keeping the consumer tied to certain practices that allows poor decision-making and therefore allows uh, profits of big corporations and and those interested in making money off uh, poor choices of consumers, uh, you know, survive longer than it is is, uh, perhaps warranted. So I think that uh, 
when we talk about, uh, for example, alcohol prohibitions, uh, yes, I think uh, religions like Islam and Judaism actually uh, prohibit much of uh, prohibit these practices. Uh, but our reasoning essentially is rooted in religious practice. Uh, but we also know now, as you were saying, that uh, prohibitions of these kinds were actually instituted because of their negative effects. Uh, but it's not listened to because it is too far uh, a destructive proposition for the capitalist economies that have relied on these uh, sort of uh, practices to be able to make money that they are now used to. Thank you, Dr. Raleem. And and I guess that that is a, a very interesting perspective on um, the things that really seem to determine what what um, the criticisms are uh, for Qatar and for for other countries as well. The commercial the commercial interests. I, I, I again find it really really fascinating that cultural norms um, around. Say, for instance, the use the use of drugs is is absolutely fascinating because because of course, uh, although uh, alcohol is a is a, a highly destructive drug, it is it is openly and widely used in in many many developed countries, and yet, for instance, um, a uh, a stimulant drug such as um, a cut which is used in many uh, uh, countries in uh, southern Africa. Um, is banned in the in the United Kingdom um, uh, and was banned a few a few years ago in the United Kingdom because it was it was seen as a drug which was uh, potentially dangerous because it had mind altering effects and and uh, because it was a because it was a a, a stimulant um, drug uh, criticisms that could very easily be um, and clearly be uh, leveled against against alcohol. Um, but I guess there's there's no big commercial vendors that are that are selling these other these other um, drugs these other agents. But but alcohol is big business. Um, I think it's pretty clear for anyone who's following the World Cup to look at the list of sponsors, as you said. And those sponsors are are clearly not the usual uh, sponsors. Many of them are not the usual sponsors um, that would be sponsoring the World Cup. And so this this shift, I guess, this commercial shift explains a lot of. Um, uh, what is what is happening here, and, and what the what the criticism is, um, and and I guess in in some respects, the the part of this is also that that element of um, the um, the media in much of the the Western world, whether they whether they realize it or not, whether com- commentators realize it or not, uh, being very heavily influenced by commercial interest in in terms of the things that they criticize. Uh, and the reasons that they criticise them, but I guess it's 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 also worth exploring and uh, for us to discuss in in a little bit more detail as well. That this this um, uh, so-called challenge around around cultural norms and and the ways in which which people behave and and whether or not um, a country should get to dictate the way in which people behave uh, when when visitors come to their country. What what do you what do you think about that, Dr. Raleem? I think that um, um, much of the, uh, we have talked about this earlier, uh, Dr. Ahmad, we have talked about uh, how policy making in the West is now hostage to um, political and commercial interests. Uh, We have talked about the huge influence of um, the defense military industrial complex over policy making in many of the uh, electoral policies, uh, you know, uh, 
processes, policy-making processes in the, in the advanced economies. Um, we also know how many of the wars still have happened in Middle East, uh, despite a huge opposition from the population of those countries, including the UK, for instance, which had large mm. demonstrations against the Iraq war, and yet uh, UK went to war in Iraq. So we have talked about the failure of uh, the uh, the uh, inclusion uh, or uh, or hearing of the voice of a majority of people because democratic processes have been now uh, held hostage to capitalist interests. Uh, and I think that um, Martin Wolf, uh, we have talked about this earlier uh, in one of his columns in Financial Times, have written that uh, when uh, capitalism and democracy went hand in hand, uh, things went very well for the advanced economy. But now there is a play, a play we have gotten to a place where um, capitalist interests actually have undermined the very spirit of democracy. Mm. And so I think that um, we, I'm, you know, I'm saying that uh, there are seven lobbies of uh, political and business interests in the Western world, including uh, which uh, promote uh, certain behavioral practices, which are made to feel like a part of the norm. And in the uh, interests of liberty and human rights, they are sometimes promoted to, uh, to do that. Now, uh, for instance, uh, in many Muslim countries, because of their uh, cultural uh, conservatism, any kind of public display of affection is discouraged mm. because uh, these societies think that uh, affection is reserved for a private um, environment and that uh, you're free to do what you want to do within the confines of your home, but it doesn't necessarily have to be seen outside uh, because it's... Uh, not a proper manifestation of uh, human behavior and uh, against the dictates of, uh, you know, emotional privacy. Uh, now, I think in this context, as you mentioned, um, there was a protest, and uh, and uh, in fact, uh, Mr. Cleverly was pinned down by the British, uh, by the BBC, on what is going to happen to the LGBT community people if they go to Qatar, mm. and he kept saying that. Um, uh, that uh, the British government has actually uh, um, given fair information for those people to go to Qatar and it's per per perfectly safe for them. And yet the interviewer kept pressing Mr. Tevely to give out a statement uh, uh, holding Qatar responsible for uh, making LGBT practices illegal. Uh, but when uh, the Qatars, Qataris were asked, and in fact Mr. Tevely in fact also explained that um, in Qatar, even the heterosexual couples cannot really hold hands or kiss each other in public. Uh, so it's not about um, uh, it's not about discriminating against the LGBT community. It's just that uh, the societal norm is very different. Uh, Dr. Aline, we we seem to have um, oh, we seem to have lost Dr. Aline, but we'll get we'll get him back as soon as as soon as possible. And and he was explaining there. Uh, about uh, an interview with um, James Cleverley, a member of Parliament here in the here in the UK, when being interviewed by the BBC on the question of um, uh, members of the LGBT community visit, visiting Qatar, and and he was explaining that that um, uh, James Cleverley had said that um, it, it, whether um, 
heterosexual or, or homosexual couples were were there in Qatar. It was about the public display of affection, and there there was there's no restriction what people do do in in private behind behind closed doors, and 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 that that is one of the one of the principles um, that we're that we're really discussing here and 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 uh, getting getting behind and getting into the detail of that this idea that social norms. Um, uh, somehow must be enforced for um, uh, by visitors onto, onto a country that they're visiting is is uh, an, an ultimate example of this sort of um, cultural imperialism as as practiced unfortunately by by a lot of Western nations and and you can take many many examples of uh, of that um, and uh, obviously we've we've spoken about alcohol but you know you you could re- you could reverse it you could reverse this example and you could say that you know there are there are many instances where if someone were visiting the UK would we expect them to behave in a certain way now many people in the United States for instance uh, believe it is their right. A right to bear arms. It's part of their culture that they bear arms, that they walk around with guns, and that they and they should have the ability to to um, uh, use those guns when they when they need to, and certainly display those guns publicly. Here in the UK, that would be um, absolutely um, forbidden, both legally and culturally. It would not be normal for people to walk around d- displaying guns. It would not be normal for 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 people to to um, uh, have that particular worldview that 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 guns are a are a normal and accepted part of of society, um, and and so you w- you would not expect a, a visitor from the United States to the United Kingdom who who was at, of that particular worldview to um, be allowed to walk around um, carrying a gun. Uh, many uh, states um, in the United uh, United States of America have now legalized um, marijuana. Um, the UK has not legalized marijuana. Um, in in some states in the United States, you you can um, smoke it openly and and legally, and it's not an issue. That is not the case in many European countries, and so you would not expect those individuals to be able to come and to do practice those things um, without being condemned, without perhaps being prosecuted for them, um, and and yet, uh, you know, this this is just another example of of, of cross cultural differences, even within um, developed nations. Uh, where where um, uh, there would be condemnation and people expect to have to behave in a particular way. Um, uh, it would be unacceptable if someone made a decision that they were going to walk around um, central London not wearing any clothes at all. Um, and and if that was their if that was their cultural practice, it would clearly be condemned. They would probably be arrested by a police person, um, and and taken away for a for a breach of the public peace. And yet they might argue that this is culturally this is absolutely acceptable to uh, to me. This is part of my culture. How dare you condemn this part of uh, part of my culture and not allow me to practice this culture? It is a very similar argument to those individuals that would go to a country like Qatar and claim that oh. My rights are being um, uh, restricted because I'm not allowed to practice the things that I practice back at home, and so it, it is. It, it is the height of um, cultural arrogance for uh, individuals to to make those claims, but also to to criticize and condemn a country like Qatar um, uh, for that, um, especially in the context of the of the World Cup. Um, so we're going to try and get Dr. Aleem back on the line, um, and in the meantime, we're going to take a very short break.
Writings of the Promised Messiah In a dream, I saw an angel seated on an elevated platform in the guise of a boy. In his hand, he was holding a pure loaf of bread which was very bright. He gave it to me and said, This is for you and the dervishes who are with you. I saw this dream at a time when I was not at all known, nor had I put forth any claim, nor was there any group of dervishes with me. But now I have a large jamaat of people who have voluntarily chosen to put their faith above the world, and have thus reduced themselves to the position of dervishes. Having migrated from their homes and having separated themselves from their relatives and friends, they have taken up permanent abode near me. I have interpreted the loaf of bread as meaning that God himself will provide for me and for my followers and that we will not be rendered anxious on account of lack of provision. This has been the case over a long number of years. And we're back now. The time is uh, 10.34 on today, Sunday, the 27th of November 2022. And thankfully, we have Dr. Aleem back on the line. Uh, Dr. Aleem, thank you for for, um, being patient with us. A little bit of technical difficulty there. Um, And and you were talking about the um, representative of the British government, James Cleverley, MP, uh, when he was being interviewed by the BBC um, and and what he was saying uh, when pushed about um, uh, individuals from the LGBT community visiting Qatar. Yes, and and we were saying that um, uh, some of these norms uh, or uh, human rights issues that talk about from the Western perspective are not applicable or very different from a cultural perspective um, in uh, many parts of the world, in fact. Uh, And I believe that uh, Mr. Tavli tried to explain that in that interview, uh, saying that uh, the, uh, the, there is no specific ban on LGBT, but it has to do more with a cultural practice of, uh, of not uh, having a public display of affection, either in heterosexual or homosexual couples. So, uh, so the, the, the fact that uh, this uh, World Cup actually is perhaps the first one in the Arab Muslim world, uh, is also an opportunity for many of the advanced economies in the western part of the world to, to learn that uh, many societies have different kinds of practices and all of those norms that they believe are the norms are not uh, the same in other parts of the world. And that's perfectly understandable and listed from their point of view. Um, so uh, the, 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 the belief that only one cultural norm should be imposed or should be right, in fact, is not a correct position. So, I, I, I and I guess there are t- there are two parts to this, Doctor um, Liam. Just to just to unpack that a little bit. One one is the belief that my cultural norms are absolutely correct, and every other country should adhere to those cultural norms. And if they don't, they should be condemned for it. And if they don't, then we shouldn't, for instance, be holding the World Cup in that country. Um, and uh, and so, you know, you, you could pick a hundred different cultural norms and start to break um, everything down by, by those norms. Um, many countries would regard um, access to healthcare as, as being a, 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 a fundamental human right. Uh, and so um, perhaps... You know, we sh- we shouldn't be holding 
um, the World Cup in the United States for that very reason, because they they don't have uh, universal access to to healthcare, um, and that's very problematic. I mean, how can a civilized uh, nation uh, do that? And and it might it might sound frivolous to say that, but a, but actually there there is probably a, a a strong claim from a human rights perspective uh, for people to condemn the United States for the fact that they um, they let um, commercial interests. Um, override the human rights interests of individuals in terms of their access to health care. Indeed. In fact, uh, in many states in the U.S., um, the, the age to consent for marriage is still not 18. It's mm. uh, way below 18. And uh, uh, we, we haven't heard any real criticism of those practices, uh, of these practices where a minor actually is able to consent uh, to uh, even marriage or uh, you know uh, other kinds of relationships. So, so I believe that um, uh, what we are discussing here is uh, uh, is cultural diversity and norms in different societies. Mm. Um, and I think the worldview that um, the the world the dominant worldview that uh, West has has uh, been able to impose for a long time because of its uh, because of its history is now coming to uh, a clear end uh, but i still hold my position that in many cases some of these um, practices that are highlighted uh, are not done from the point of view of actually preserving anybody's rights but these are done with the point of view of putting uh, governments on the back or on defense Mm. So that these governments can be pressurized into uh, into doing contracts which are um, of advantage to the advanced economy. Mm. Uh, we know already that um, because of the huge criticism that was done in Denmark, um, you know they they lost a huge contract in Kapur, uh, and I don't know the full details, but there is certainly an element of um, you know oil uh, mm-hmm. contracts that Qatar had uh, was going to renew but has cancelled in was cancelled in 2016 that lies behind a huge amount of criticism that came out of uh, Danish press um, just yesterday I think that um, uh, the criticism that came out of um, uh, UK uh, you know uh, over the last 10 years uh, 12 years of uh, span of uh, uh, when the uh, award was announced for Qatar and 2022, so it was announced in 2010, and it's been 12 years. Uh, some people have analyzed this uh, coverage in the British press, and uh, out of 100 articles, uh, if you were to take 100%, uh, 66% articles in the UK have been negative about Qatar, and mm. only 25% are neutral and 5% positive articles in newspapers. So obviously there is a very well-organized uh, media uh, um, uh, movement or media effort to put Qatar into a negative light uh, in terms of its human rights record. But behind the scenes, I think this was being done to pressurize Qatar into holding certain contracts and for commercial interests. So just yesterday, in fact, Qatar has released a statement that it will start reviewing its contracts with the UK in, for the future. And that just might do the trick. So again, I think... Uh, uh, some of these, as we said, these are double standards. And in fact, FIFA World Cup uh, uh, president has gone on the press and on television saying that uh, some of these uh, racist practices and discriminations that he in fact felt as an Italian uh, Italian living in uh, in uh, other countries. So 
Um, I think that uh, behind some of these things, I still see uh, a huge amount of uh, contracts, commercial interests, and uh, business interests at stake, uh, which then lobby and organize around uh, trying to push back and holding governments to what they think is holding them accountable, uh, but it's really for something, something else. Now, Amnesty has come out with a very good report in June 22 on Qatar with workers' rights and labor rights. And, uh, you know, uh, Western press picked up many negative findings from the from that report, but completely ignored most of the positive work that was done in Qatar on labor rights and workers' rights. Uh, so we know that these are sort of intended to, for a certain purpose, which is not apparent to us. But obviously, uh, you know, all human rights issues have to be taken when raised by certain governments to be taken with a pinch of salt because one has to really go behind the headlines and say what is really going on. Mm. And, and I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that there's, there's um, things to unpack here in terms of what what is really going on as you as you put it because one one can clearly see that there for an individual nation there might be things that are that should be condemned and called out in terms of human rights abuses perhaps it's the it's the way in which children or or women are treated perhaps it's the way in which um uh, particular classes of people or ethnic groups are 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 treated or religious minorities are treated for instance uh, and and Clearly, where this is the case and these individuals are being um, oppressed or their rights are being cur- curtailed, um, then, it, then it behoves all of us to say, actually, that isn't right. And we, and we condemn that and, and we say that that, is, that that is wrong. The question, however, becomes what, what is the extension of that? Where, how far do you go with that? Do you say that uh, because this is wrong, because I see this, this uh, uh, people being treated in such a way that, that therefore I, sh- I will say I'm not going to have anything to do with, with that particular uh, country or nation. We are going to uh, not just condemn them, but we're going to cut off all of our relations uh, with that country. We are not going to engage in, in uh, any sort of um, political exchange with them, cultural exchange with them, financial exchange with them. Is is this the is this the extent to which we 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 go? And, and we can see the way in which Russia is being treated at the moment as a as a pariah uh, by the vast majority of um, developed countries in the world, and, that, and I think that is really really fascinating and telling as well. That actually Russia has uh, a, a lot of goodwill from. Uh, less developed uh, countries, because they they clearly see the hypocrisy in in one developed nation being um, utterly condemned for um, its invasion of a sovereign nation, such as um, Russia has done of of Ukraine, and yet another country such as the United States, the United Kingdom, who have over the past couple of decades invaded um, uh, other sovereign nations. They are not similarly condemned or made to feel um, uh, financial constraints or or have um, uh, other uh, bans etc. put up, put on them um, because of that because of that behaviour. And so um, there is very much a a, a, um, a hypocrisy in, in inherent within this. And I, and 
And I guess that, that that's one of the things that really needs to be called out in all of this, that that ultimately the thing that will that will make a change is um, is diplomacy, is conversation, is is opening up the question and and transparency and um, and pushing towards good governance rather than simple condemnation um, and and banning or making pariahs out of certain countries around the world. Indeed, and I think that uh, um, uh, you know there has been um, interviews on several on televisions where it has been shown that uh, yes, Qatar has uh, tremendously improved its uh, record on workers' rights and labor rights, and this has happened over the last ten years. As you were saying, in terms of a constructive engagement with the government of Qatar on mm. the conditions that workers uh, actually face in their country, and so. I think that if one is constructively engaged and, as you were saying, uh, diplomatically engaged, and most of this work is done behind the behind the scenes, not condemning nations for their behavior, but trying to work with uh, influence, influential policymakers to get the conditions right, because uh, condemning a government doesn't really entirely help the conditions of those workers. Uh, but I think that uh, when we talk about um, uh, what we talk about. Uh, uh, sort of an over-condemnation. Uh, it is, of course, required in certain circumstances. But as you know, uh, as uh, we speak for Voice of Islam, we have to be very careful when we do something like that because, um, because you know, how information is nowadays uh, plagued with uh, disinformation and, mm-hmm. uh, and one has to make judgment calls on whether uh, some information source is correct or not correct. Um, I think that if we look at uh, sort of uh, just as take a bird's eye view of the journalistic practices and the media from uh, from advanced economies and in fact many parts of the world, we know that most of the media is now controlled by large corporations and even the governments. So there's a very little amount of uh, uh, mainstream media and in fact alternative media that can be really trusted with very reliable information that can be used to uh, issue a, a real uh, a full condemnation of any action. Uh, and that puts us in a very difficult situation. Uh, but if one has to one has to triangulate information from many sources, and, you know, uh, the head of the Ahmadiyya movement, Mr. Ahmad, who has been speaking about these issues, mm. uh, you know, does this. And, uh, you know, he's been speaking about um, the influence of the of these uh, very powerful political and business groups, uh, which distort policy making in many uh, advanced economies, and I think that uh, uh, I think that um, with careful and diplomatic, uh, uh, you know, uh, voices working behind the scenes without really sensationalizing uh, and displaying double standards, it's much easier to get countries to adopt better and good practices. And I think in this case, uh, it has happened in Qatar. And I think that uh, holding World Cup, uh, FIFA World Cup in Qatar has been very helpful for the the foreign workers in in Qatar. In fact, uh, many legislations have been made and and changed over the last 10 years. Uh, So you're absolutely right. Uh, But I think that that, uh, there is, of course, a space for, um, for... uh, calling out uh, wrong practices and human rights abuses, which are very obvious and clear. And in that case, we should not hesitate to bring that to the fore. Thank you, Dr. Fulim. And, and, and I guess that that's where, that's where the, the balance lies, really, in terms of it is, of course, uh, um, 
acceptable and not not just acceptable but but it should be the case that where the practices within a particular nation are condemnable they should be they should be condemned they should be called out they should be shown to be um uh, you know to what 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 they are but the um i guess the the detail in this is also accepting and remembering that for instance the reason that a country like the united kingdom has um a relatively speaking relatively speaking better um uh, set of uh, rules around labor laws and better treatment of workers in the united kingdom is because of the those laws that are in place and if those laws weren't there then undoubtedly market forces would mean that that uh, workers were treated terribly there would be huge outcry um, but they would be treated terribly and it's only because there are rules and laws in place that workers are treated uh, treated better than than they would be otherwise um and and uh, and i guess that it's understanding that it's understanding that the that the, the position that a country such as the united kingdom in, is is in is only because of the slow accretion of these laws and these practices and this uh, this slow change which has occurred um over many many decades and it, and it's still going on you know there there are there are um uh, parts of the way in which individuals are, are, are treated and differences between developed um, nations as well, which could you could easily condemn one country for the way in which it treats its uh, workers com- compared to another. One one very simple and obvious example um, is the way in which, for instance, in the United States, you can pretty much summarily be dis- dismissed for for no particular reason. Um, uh, here in in Europe, there are there are significant labour laws. Which prevent that from happening without without very good reason. People cannot simply be fired, and and you know, that that difference would be considered. Oh well, that that is simply a question of the rights of the individual um, uh, un, under labour laws, and and you know you could easily condemn the United States for not having the same sorts of laws, and so you know do you, do you get to the point where you say well when we're, we're not we're not even going to have any sort of diplomatic relations with the uh, with the united states because of this significant difference and because of the fact that they treat their workers so appallingly and so it it is uh, it's an understanding that these things change slowly they change with time they they evolve and in most cases they evolve um in a in a direction which is um uh, better for individuals living in in a certain country, and and that um, revolution rarely brings about um, significant good change, um, with, without a, a huge amount of um, upset and violence occurring along along the way. And evolution is a far better way for these things to occur. Indeed, and I think that Hassar's uh, historical perspective is very helpful. Uh, UK has been a nation state for for uh, in fact many centuries. Uh, not just uh, decades of practice, but you know, um, it, it makes it takes a nation to become a nation. It takes a very, very long time. In fact, uh, uh, you know, America is only 300 years old. Uh, you know, the Dutch and the and the English Empire existed for a very long time. And mm-hmm. I think that the efforts at reforming labor practices were introduced a long time back and have been honed and and fine tuned. Uh, in the democratic uh, era and uh, democratic practices. Mm. Uh, but I must also highlight that in many advanced economies, you still have 
um, slave labor, which is not highlighted, but we know that numbers that are currently that come out of international labor organization mention that uh, there are uh, over, uh, if I'm right, about 40 to 50 million people who are engaged in slave labor in uh, many of the advanced economies. Uh, some of the labor practices that are encouraged by advanced economies in developing countries, uh, including countries like Bangladesh and in China, for instance, uh, border on uh, labor uh, law abuses. Mm. Because uh, labor rights have been so well protected in uh, in Europe, uh, that it becomes sometimes commercially unfeasible to get and to acquire labor, um, uh, you know, labor at a very low cost. So, uh, labor practices have have shifted and labor forces have shifted uh, because money can move across borders and labor can be engaged in parts of the world where those laws are not strong. Mm. So, you are absolutely right that uh, yes, those countries should be engaged, but I think that. Corporate sector in the advanced economy, uh, in the advanced economies, also must be held accountable and responsible for making sure that those kinds of abuses don't happen. Uh, and uh, we all know that in many uh, in, in instances where, where uh, there have been large fires in urban areas in Bangladesh, where mm. many people have been killed, mm, mm, mm. these have been traced to uh, very low wage and very bad labor conditions, uh, which were uh, sort of uh, allowing very low-cost products to be sold to the advanced economy. Uh, so I think we need to also be aware of that, and I believe that um, uh, constructive engagement, but also holding, uh, you know, uh, those large corporations that are sometimes responsible for just making money at the cost of human life must also be held accountable, which are also to a large extent based on the advanced economy. And I guess that also goes to the heart of the question of how um, change is brought about very briefly before we before we come to the news. Because I guess, you know, some people will say, oh, it's ter- terrible labor practices in Bangladesh. I'm not going to buy any of those cheap clothes because that supports a system of um, labor abuse in, in Bangladesh or in, or in another country. And, and yet those individuals working in that system are reliant on that money to be able to support their families. And would it not be better for those individuals who, are, who ultimately are taking advantage of, of, of cheap clothing available to them um, to say, well, actually, you know, I'm willing to pay more if those, um, uh, uh, if those workers are supported better and, and, to, and to be... Um, uh, someone uh, that brings about positive change ra- rather than just using sanction um, and boycott as a as a tool, uh, which unfortunately re- rarely works and rarely makes a difference. Adaptation, in fact, in fact, of policy is very critical. I think that what you're referring to is, uh, I can give you a practical example where uh, when this issue was highlighted, for instance, in Bangladesh, where child labor was involved, mm. Uh, suddenly, uh, many child laborers were let go, and that put their families in serious problems because these were the only bread earners in their families. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the cost of living was so high that the children were actually engaged in, in labor because without which the family would actually go mm. uh, hungry. Um, so I think that uh, uh, that in some cases, for instance, the policy that a child will never be involved in labor but in fact counterproductive to imposing a full ban on child labor and not considering the reality of the country. So, in fact, an adaptation was made to the uh, the absolute law 
and uh, and it was uh, decided that children can actually engage in uh, non-exhausting or uh, non-dangerous labor after school hours, mm. so that uh, so that they can attend school and be able to make progress in life. Uh, so instead of implementing an absolutist policy, it was important to consider global conditions and make kinds of policies that don't put those on the other side of the equation under tremendous stress and at the at the danger of going hungry. Thank you very much, Dr. Raleem, for a really fascinating conversation over the last hour. Um, uh, and I think that in in conclusion, I guess the. The real message is that um, whilst we might look at cultural differences and, and differences in cultural norms and, and differences in the way in which people are treated, uh, and we might say, well, we we don't think that that's acceptable, it is, it's not helpful in many cases to, to simply condemn and sanction and try and impose a particular worldview on, on individuals of a, of a different nation or a different cultural background, um, but far better to have a, an engaged conversation ar- around these things. And that is the way in which change and real change is, is brought about. And that cultural exchange needs to happen in both directions without an assumption that one particular culture is superior over, over another. Um, so uh, thank you very much, Dr. Aleem, for, for joining us today and hopefully get to speak to you again soon. Thank you. That was Dr. Abdul Aleem. And um, uh, al- always um, a pleasure to have a, uh, to have a conversation with him and to talk about um, uh, things that are happening around the world. And, and you're listening live to Weekend World and the Voice of Islam. If you want to be part of the conversation, then you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, and uh, if, if you want to call through to the studio, the number is 0208687878. Our website is uh, www.voiceforislam.co.uk, and you're listening live to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam. It's coming up to 11 o'clock and the news. If you want to listen again to this program after it's been broadcast or any of our other programs, you can do so by going to SoundCloud and searching for Voice of Islam and then looking for Weekend World and the entire back catalog of our of our programs is available there for you to listen to. So we're going to be back after the news um, uh, and you can continue to listen to our conversation about the um, week's news uh, and what's happening around the world. So please keep tuned to Weekend World. Assalamu alaikum. The time is two minutes past 11 on today, Sunday, the 27th of November 2022. And you're listening live to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. Thank you for staying tuned. And I'm very lucky to be joined by Khalil Yusuf uh, for the uh, second half of the program. Assalamu alaikum, Khalil. Thank you for joining us. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning. Khalil, I, I hope you're feeling well. Very much appreciate the fact that you have. Um, uh, joined us today for the program despite having a heavy cold uh, and and I'm sure our listeners are very grateful as well. It's always a pleasure to have you on. It's so kind of you. They'll be benefiting from a very deep radio voice today. <laughs> One of the advantages of of ha- yes. having a viral infection. Well, there we go. And and um, Khalil, I lost to talk about um, in the news today, but one, one thing which, um, uh, which really... Um, uh, piqued my attention actually was a a, a report looking at um, the London Fire Brigade and reports of of um, racism misogyny within within the organisation and um, a former chief prosecutor prosecutor in in the UK um, Nazir Afzal um, was asked to uh, compile a report 
on on the London Fire Brigade, and and he looked at it and he looked at at um, in quite a lot of detail, interviewed staff, uh, and he said that um, the London Fire Brigade was um, had significant problems with racism and and with misogyny, and there were all sorts of very unpleasant examples um, uh, put in the report about the sorts of behaviours that were displayed by some some members. Of the of the London Fire Brigade, um, uh, which in in any circumstances would be described as as um, bullying and harassment and discrimination, discrimination against women, discrimination against individuals of of um, uh, uh, particular ethnic groups. Um, uh, it appears that Islamophobia was was rife within or is rife within the London Fire Brigade from from certain individuals, and and one thinks about the number of reports of this sort that have come out of over the last few years and and uh, challenges with institutional racism um and and misogyny within within at large institutions in the UK and it, and it's i guess disturbing but but sadly not surprising that we see uh, these things then rear their ugly head within um, an organization such as the fire brigade in london Look, it's very disappointing to have uh, read this report and for there even to be a need for such a report to be issued in relation to one of these institutions, which is so essential to the health and safety of our country. It's also unfortunate that institutional racism, which is I think the right term that you have used, has been found not just in the fire brigade, but also historically within the police service as well. So it's important that we address the causes of this structural racism that we find in and discrimination generally, actually, that we find in some of our institutions, because if we're not able to address that structural racism, then ultimately that's going to affect not just our, the societies and the peoples who these institutions are designed to serve, but it also gives rise to the potential for other organizations to uh, have these sorts of issues within their organizations because of a culture of social acceptability or because of a culture where those issues are not addressed with sufficient determination to make sure that uh, they are condemned uh, you know entirely thank you for that Khalil and 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 I guess that that that's the that's the real question in the first in the first half of the program we would we would Talking about the fact that uh, a country like Qatar is, is criticised for human rights abuses and the way in which it behaves, and yet we we then see a report like this coming out of the United Kingdom, and and, and I guess you know we, we would say that there are certain expectations within the United Kingdom about the way in which people uh, should be treated, that we should not see uh, misogyny of any sort within within a large. Uh, um, uh, organisations such as the London Fire Brigade that we should not see uh, both a lack of diversity and and of, of racism within within these organisations. It is accepted that this this should not be the case. This ought to be the cultural norm, and yet it is clearly not. And so it feels like that there is um, noise made at one level, which says that oh, we wouldn't accept that. But but uh, unfortunately, on the on the on the ground roots level, it is it is accepted. And I guess the big question then. Uh, becomes clear. How, how do we bring about 
change, real change, within these organizations. Because, um, as you said, it's not just the London Fire Brigade. It, it is, it's been pointed out that there are problems with a number of police forces in the United Kingdom, uh, and there are problems within, for instance, the NHS, and that's, that's something that we've discussed within this program as well. So how, how does that change uh, come about? Because it feels like that's a societal problem, not a problem of those um, organizations um, uh, on their own. It's not just a problem of the organisations and the and the and the procedures that they have in place to stop this sort of thing from happening. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting that you raise that point because when you have an organisation that is institutionally racist, any organisation is institutionally racist. What it means is that you have such a large number of people within that organisation who are behaving in that discriminatory way that it becomes part of the culture. And so that means that uh, whilst that isn't a reflection of everybody within those organizations, it means that actually it is so widespread that it is almost socially acceptable. And those voices who don't find it acceptable are not loud enough or powerful enough to be able to eradicate that sort of discrimination. And that suggests actually that uh, it is a societal issue. This is a point that you made, I think, within your question. And I think, actually, that we have to look very carefully about how our society as a whole functions. I mean, if you take a look at politicians of, of every color, to be honest with you, um, mm. a, a lot of their rhetoric uh, singles out groups, singles out organizations, singles out each other uh, in, in trying to you know, and and tries to succeed by by undermining other groups. I mean, look at the uh, discussion that we're having in the media about migration. There are headline figures that are reported within the media of uh, of around I think about a million of half a million uh, migrants that are coming into this country. And what they fail to distinguish is that actually a larger number of those migrants that come to this country are legal migrants, migrants that have come on the basis of policies and procedures that have been put in place by the government themselves. But the way that migrants are dealt with within the media gives a social acceptability to, to demean them. Mm. And that sort of, that, that sort of lawful discrimination, if you like, from politicians or what's perceived as being lawful, is something that begins to pervade society as a whole. It becomes acceptable to single out you know, groups or organizations or people who are different in some way or who don't have the same opportunities and facilities as us. Uh, and then that then becomes uh, a basis, if you like, for that sort of discriminatory language and behavior to then pervade other organizations, particularly large organizations which are, are, are old and don't have new and modern systems like perhaps the police service and the fire brigade and, and others as well. So I think that as a society as a whole, we have to look at how we engage with each other and how we uh, and the responsibility that we take for those groups that are much less fortunate than ourselves. You know, in the Ambia community, we have this motto of love for all, hatred for none. Uh, that was a, a phrase that was coined by our third Khalifa. And, and the reason why that is such an important phrase is because at the very center of it is an equality in which we treat everybody equally. And that, of course, was the message of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So I think that that is a, a very important lesson that we as a society need to learn so that we can build a much fairer and more equal society. 
and I, and I guess thank you thank you for that Khalil and I guess that you know it's it is a a principle that very few people would have trouble agreeing with really that that you say that that strong Islamic principle as well um, passed um, uh, to us by the Holy Prophet of Islam peace be upon him of of that idea of of equality and one thinks about his his final sermon in which he made it very clear that it didn't matter what your ethnic background was that an individual was not superior to another individual um, uh, only in respect of their of their um, spiritual status and and not in not in any other way and and even that doesn't doesn't bring any any sort of um, advantage uh, in in terms of rights and responsibilities um, and and so the the this idea of of, of equality um, and this idea of con- condemning um, uh, the the idea that someone should should have more rights or or should be treated in a different way because of their uh, ethnic or or social uh, uh, background is 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 an incredibly important one um, and I guess it's one that that as a as a society. <clears throat> This, this, and I guess this is a really important point that one can see that principle being drawn out from the, from every cultural um, and religious background, and 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 therefore is an idea that everyone should be able to agree with and 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 get behind, um, and that what we have to condemn and condemn very strongly is any idea from any group that there is any advantage that should be ought to be given to an individual because of their ethnic background. Um, or, or because of the fact that they belong to to a particular background, whether it's cultural, religious, or ethnic, and I guess that 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 is that is very very important. Um, so mo- moving the conversation on, uh, Khalil, there has been a lot of talk over the last few months, and especially over the summer, because we've had one of the one of the hottest summers for for a very very long time, and very very dry, and so. Um, uh, extremely, extremely challenging from an environmental perspective, and there has been much condem- condemnation of water companies who have been dumping sewage into rivers and, and onto beaches. and And there's a uh, um, questions that have been asked by government and 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 condemnation both of uh, the companies, but also of government government itself for not doing enough to stop this. and I and I guess this is, is it when I when I read a story like this, it's really really sad to think that you know we've got. Uh, a country with the resources that the United Kingdom has, um, rich enough to be able to uh, have the sort of infrastructure that would be the envy of many countries around the world, and yet we fail to do um, the most basic things in terms of protecting the health um, uh, of individuals and the and the health of the natural environment by um, by not doing something as as um, simple as uh, dumping. Uh, sewage, raw sewage, in, into the national environment in 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 areas where it will directly affect individuals, um, and so I mean it's it's uh, I'm not sure there's really a question here, Khalil. It's it it is condemnable, I guess, in 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 many many ways. It is actually, and I think if you look at this issue historically, I mean, you will uh, some of you will know that actually, uh, uh, dirty water was one of the significant public health crisis over the course of the last 200 years or so. Mm. And what historically used to happen was that 
the drinking water and human feces and, and other contaminants were all mixed together and that gave rise to all sorts of diseases, cholera, typhoid and other bacterial and viral infections which actually killed many millions in, in lots of uh, epidemics that occurred you know, a couple of hundred or so years ago and, and I would have thought that we should have been able to move on from that and what seems to be happening is that the overflows of water and the mixing of uh, sewage with uh, drinking water, albeit that it is treated, um, is creating a new public health crisis because that is now giving rise to uh, diseases now becoming more prevalent uh, in our country than otherwise they should have been. So I think it is a real crisis and actually uh, it's something that can easily be avoided, appreciating that there is a cost to do so, but the water industry really needs to install and monitor overflows make sure that uh, all of the raw sewage and the uh, storm overflows that cause some of this issue uh, are properly monitored and that there is no contamination of our drinking water. I mean, drinking water is in the UK safe, but uh, from the tap is safe, but uh, obviously the rivers are hugely contaminated and it's important that that is addressed because uh, when you have the overflow of uh, raw sewage and water, then that creates all sorts of other issues, and and the bacteria then has an ability to be able to spread, you know, through other means. So I think it is. You're right. I mean, I'd, it's a it's a, a no-brainer. This issue needs to be addressed. Thank you, Khalil. Um, another issue which has, I guess, been simmering in many ways over the over the last few months has been. A question of a, a huge amount of, of discontent amongst amongst workers here in the UK as the cost of living, uh, living uh, crisis continues, as people are finding it more and more difficult to, um, with with massive inflation, to be able to afford their heating or to to be able to buy food. Huge constraints put in place by the government on increases in wages to public sector workers. We see in the private sector. That wages are going up in line with inflation. We can we can see that 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 is that is happening, and yet those individuals who are working in the public sector are being constrained from um, from having increases in their pay, um, and and for practical purposes, and not just this year but year on year, public sector workers have seen um, decreases in their pay, not increases in their pay. They have essentially seen year on year pay cuts and we see that especially in 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 health but in in other in, <coughs> industries as well um and there has been a talk of strike action amongst many individuals and now we are seeing that that there is the potential for strikes amongst nurses um we ongoing strikes uh, from train drivers and railway staff but also now potentially from royal male workers, from from teachers in Scotland and from civil servants. And this is going to be a massive, massive issue for the government. And I I guess really goes to the heart of of their response. The government will say, well, if we increase the pay uh, of individuals in the public sector, then this will stoke inflation and make inflation worse. Um, But but why is it that those individuals um, who are... Um, already not earning as much as as uh, contemporaries within the private sector should be the ones who have to suffer because of a of a lack of coherent public um, policy or a lack of of the the government's ability to get on top of things. Um, Khalil, ha- 
I mean, it, it's it's a it's a massive, massive challenge. No one wants to see people striking, um, and especially healthcare workers because of the potential effect that that, that might have on people who are trying to access healthcare. Um, but um, it's it's a real challenge um, because of uh, because of the um, uh, the situation that many of these workers will find themselves in. Um, look, I, you know, it's a, this is a very personal uh, view from me, but the the fundamental responsibility of any state starts with looking after the interests of its own people and making sure that they have the basic requirements of food, shelter. Uh, and security and the at the moment with the significant increase in the cost of living it is increasingly difficult particularly for those in the public sector who often are not paid as much as those in the private sector doctors and nurses can earn much much more in the private sector than they can uh, in the NHS but it's important that they are able to sustain themselves and their families and I think that whilst from a, a purely technical perspective, increasing uh, wages does uh, boost inflation, the reality is that the private sector has increased its wages and the public sector also needs to follow. Because if it doesn't, all it's doing is penalising those public sector workers and putting them in a position where they're not able to sustain the essentials, food and energy and a travel to and from work and all of those essential costs that are uh, uh, that are important, you know, in order to sustain ourselves. The other point that I would make, and again, it's a, a very personal view, is that it is for the government to think very carefully about where it spends its money. It's not that there isn't money, there is money, mm. but it's about where it decides to spend that money. Should it spend that money in, for example, supporting public sector workers who are looking after, in hospitals, for example, looking after our sick, our needy, our uh, increasingly aging population, you know, or should that money be spent in, in other places, maybe, you know, funding uh, uh, wars, weapons, and other things. In my personal view, I think the primary responsibility of the government is to look after the people in this country, make sure that they have their basic needs and, and uh, you know, funding uh, war in other countries, I think is probably much less of a priority and something that perhaps should be led by international organizations and uh, countries together in a, in a consortium. So, um, and, and ultimately if they do that, it should be for the purposes of bringing about peace, not for the purposes of, uh, a perpetuating war. So uh, the conclusion, my view, is that I think the government should increase the pay of public sector workers in line with inflation, and I think that they have a, a responsibility to do so. Thank, thank you, Khalil. Uh, and I guess, I mean, you, you make some very, very good and cogent points there about one about where government should be should be spending its money um, and whether whether that money is being spent appropriately and and the remaining government who say well you know the money the money that we give to the NHS should be spent more efficiently and yet when you when you look at the statistics it, it is one of the most efficient healthcare systems in in the world actually in terms of in terms of outcomes for money spent and yet now we are in a situation where actually those efficiencies are being degraded because of a lack of resources and and, wor and worsening healthcare outcomes and on the back of the um 
on on the back of the the COVID pandemic, things have been made significantly worse, and we can see that now. And in fact, many economists are now pointing towards health and poor health of the nation being um, what is being described as an economic headwind. Uh, whereas traditionally, good health and and resources applied to health. Um, have been an economic tailwind. That is, they've supported economic productivity because they're a healthier um, workforce is able to work harder and, and is able to produce more more money. But now we're in a situation where, because of the the, the state of the the healthcare system, and a lot of these challenges are actually driven by a lack of resources, which includes the resources available for for workers within those organisations. I mean, if you if you can't afford to work, why should you should you work? And and you know, people have been leaving the nursing profession in droves because of this. And we've got a significantly poor number of nurses. Why should someone decide to become trained as a nurse and come into the NHS when they know that they will be poorly paid and they're better off going into in into private industry and 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 working in another sector and so it's it's a it's a massive challenge that the the um, public sector is not attractive for young people to come into and therefore we are going to perpetuate this issue of poor public um, services including the NHS um, leading to um, a worse economic outcome outcome uh, and in fact it 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 uh, behoves the government to invest it for growth by investing in public sector and uh, uh, public sector services. Um, and as you say, you know, if you uh, if you invest in youth services and if you invest in social services for older people, um, those older people, for instance, are less likely to come into hospital. They're going to get less sick, and therefore they're going to be less of a uh, of a, an economic burden on the NHS freeing up resources for for other things and so this this whole thing becomes a, a virtuous cycle if we allow it to become a virtuous cycle and a vicious cycle uh, of of worsening problems if it's allowed to go in that way but but obviously it requires the bravery of a of um, a government that is willing to spend in order to really solve this problem and and that I guess is is p- part of the significant challenge um uh, and uh, certainly not the noises that we see from the from um, the current government, or from from uh, governments over the last ten years here in the here in the UK, as you say, these are these are our uh, uh, personal opinions on on the situation as we as we see it, Khalil. But um, you know, uh, uh, for myself, looking looking across the uh, the issue within the NHS, certainly, I think that is one of the most significant challenges that we that we see. Well, there's, there's, you know, there's a wider problem as well, actually, because, uh, of course, it affects our GDP if we're not able to have a healthy population mm. who can work and contribute. But, you know, there's another corollary as well, which is that we spend a great deal, medical schools spend a great deal of money training doctors and training nurses. And what tends to happen is that in many cases, they will leave this country, they'll go to Australia or go to other jurisdictions, and Britain has invested in training these people, and then we don't get an outcome mm. as a result of that. And then what happens is that you have a shortage then of health workers, and then we will recruit outside of Britain in order to bring people in in order to run our health service. And that has an effect on the countries whose, who have trained 
those healthcare workers. So if you bring people in from Africa or the Philippines or other places, mm. then that creates a crisis in those countries because they lose their health workers. And so the, the there is a there is a consequence. And then you have this debate then about migration. Mm. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the, the NHS is spending you know hundreds of millions of pounds on visa applications yeah. for people who are coming to this country. So it's it's, it's circular. And so I think if you spend and a little bit more and pay your workers properly in the first place, that whole cycle is broken and you have continuity uh, in terms of training people, you have progression, and then you can uh, harness that knowledge and build what we hope is a much better health service. Thank you for that, Khalil. And we're just coming up to the to the end of, of the live segment of the programme, so just a couple of minutes. I just wanted to very briefly talk about... Um, uh, on on the back of the debate around immigration and the fact that we we there was a there was a report which said that we had the 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 biggest net migration into the country over the last year, um, and there were suggestions that the UK government would would reduce the amount of university places available for uh, so-called low quality courses. There's been this case of a of a young Nepali student who was wrongly detained at UK border. For 12 days, he was kept in custody because it was believed that he was um, uh, not really going to come and study. Um, and, and he lost his university place and, and had significant financial hardship, as well as the loss of a year of his life not being able to come and train um, in, in Yorkshire. And, um, and, and, and what feels like, uh, and we talk about the, the hostile environment policy, but a policy which which is um, discriminatory is 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 the possibly the kindest word that one can use, um, but a real consequence of the sort of um, political rhetoric that we've heard. Yeah, you know, I really, honestly, I really don't understand this debate because we have an aging population. Mm. Um, it is likely to become a much older population as we go on to 2013, 2045, which are the measures that are being used in Europe and elsewhere. Um, and we have much less uh, uh, women are having children, uh, much less. And so we have got uh, an aging population. We have got not enough young people in order to fill the jobs. Inflation is really high. There is a big skills gap. Uh, we need to recruit I think 1.2 million people to fill the the jobs that are available in this country. And for some reason, there is this ongoing debate about migration when migrants, having come to this country, have contributed so much to the economy and would actually make our country so much better. So I don't really understand why it is that this debate about migration has become uh, so prolific and is is also becoming so incendiary. I mean, is it that the population in this country as a whole uh, is very much anti-migration, and why is that the case? Or, or is it that there is a minority of very vocal people who feel that this is the right way to, uh, the right direction to take our country in? But there is no, there is no cultural or economic logic in this debate about uh, about migration because overall migration has been extremely beneficial for this country thank you very 
much, Khalil, for that. And um, brings us up to the end of the life segment of the program. So, um, uh, Khalil, thank you very much for your participation. Um, uh, pray you get better soon and, and please rest up. Um, and Jazakallah to Khalil Yusuf and, and Dr. Abdul Aleem for joining me today live on, on Weekend World. Um, and as I said, coming up to the to the end of the live segment of the program. And so in the last half an hour, you'll have the opportunity to listen to um, colleagues from Rational Religion and, and listen to the narration of a chapter of a book, uh, Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues. And that is coming up shortly. Thank you very much for listening to Weekend World. If you want to tweet at us, do at Voice of Islam UK. And if you want to listen again, you can do so on SoundCloud. Just search for uh, Voice of Islam, and then search for Weekend World, and you can listen to the back catalogue there. Thank you very much for joining me today. This is the third part in the serialization of the book Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues by Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed. We now proceed to study the status of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, of Islam, and according to the Holy Quran, the most conspicuous and incontrovertible claim regarding the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, is made in the widely known and extensively discussed verse of the Holy Quran. Muhammad, peace be upon him, is not the father of any of your men, but he is the messenger of Allah and Khatam al-Nabiyyin, the seal of the prophets, and Allah has full knowledge of all things. The Arabic word Khatam in this verse has many connotations, but the essence of the title Khatam al-Nabiyyin is without a shadow of doubt to be the very best, the supreme, the last word, the final authority, the one who encompasses all and testifies to the truth of others. Another verse which speaks of the excellence of the holy founder of Islam, peace be upon him, declares that the teachings of the holy prophet, peace be upon him, are perfect and final. The verse runs as follows. This day have I perfected your religion for you, and completed my favour upon you, and have chosen for you Islam as a religion. The obvious inference from this claim would be that of all law-bringing prophets of the world, and in giving the world the most perfect teaching, he occupies the highest station amongst the prophets. Developing the theme further, the Holy Founder, peace be upon him, is assured in no uncertain terms that the book being revealed to him will be guarded and protected from interpolations. As such, not only is the teaching claimed to be perfect, but also it is declared to be everlasting, to be kept pure and unadulterated in the very words in which they were revealed to the Holy Founder of Islam, peace be upon him. The history of the last 14 centuries has borne ample witness to the truth of this claim. The following are some relevant verses. Surely we ourselves have sent down this exhortation 
and we will most surely be its guardian. Surely, this is a glorious Quran in a well-guarded tablet. In view of the above, the Holy Founder of Islam, peace be upon him, is clearly not only declared to be supreme, but also the last and final law-bearing prophet, whose authority would continue to remain good till the end of time. Having said that, one begins to wonder if, in the eyes of some, this claim about the supremacy of the Holy Founder of Islam, peace be upon him, would be tantamount to creating ill-will or misunderstanding amongst the followers of other religions. So how can one reconcile this claim with the theme of this address, namely that Islam guarantees peace in all spheres of human interest, religion being not the least important among them? It was with this question in mind that I had to elaborate this claim at some length. This question can be answered to the satisfaction of an unprejudiced and inquiring mind in more than one way. As has already been mentioned before, similar claims are also made by followers of many other religions. It is only prudent for one to investigate the relative merits of the claim without being unduly excited about it. By itself, such a claim should not offend the sensibilities of the followers of other religions who make similar counterclaims. But Islam goes one step further by teaching humility and decency to its followers, so that their belief in the supremacy of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, is not expressed incautiously, thereby giving offence to others. The following two traditions of the Holy Founder of Islam, peace be upon him, stand aloft as beacons to illuminate the case in point. One of the companions of the Holy Founder of Islam became involved in a rather heated discussion with a staunch follower of the Prophet Jonah, of the fish. Both parties in the debate claimed their respective Prophet to be head and shoulders above the other in excellence. It appears that the Muslim contender might have rubbed in the claim in a manner so as to hurt the sensibility of the follower of Jonah who approached Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and lodged a complaint against the Muslim involved in this debate. Addressing the community in general, the Prophet issued the following words of instruction. Do not declare me to be superior over Jonah, son of Mata. Some Muslim commentators of tradition are perplexed by this tradition, as it seemingly stands counter to the Quranic claim that Muhammad, peace be upon him, is superior not only to Jonah, but all prophets. But they seem to miss the point that what he said was not that he was inferior to Jonah, nor superior to Jonah, but simply that his followers should not declare him to be superior in a manner liable to hurt the feelings of others. In the context of what had passed, the only inference one can draw is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was teaching Muslims a lesson in decency. He was instructing them not to become involved in bragging. They should take care to avoid discussing his status in a manner that would cause offence. Such an attitude would indeed be detrimental to the cause of Islam. 
because instead of winning hearts and minds to the message of Islam, quite the opposite would be achieved. This attitude of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is corroborated further by another tradition in which a Muslim was involved in a similar argument with a Jew. Both claimed and counterclaimed the relative superiority of their spiritual leaders. Again, it was the non-Muslim contender who thought it fit to lodge a complaint against the behaviour of his Muslim adversary. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, responded with his habitual humility and prudence, and taught the Muslim the same lesson in decency and courtesy by admonishing, Do not declare my superiority over Moses. The long and short of this is that it is for God to decide and declare the comparative ranking of the various prophets' closeness to him. It is quite likely that in a particular age, in the context of a particular religion, God may have expressed his pleasure with the prophet of the time in such strong terms as to declare that he was the best. Superlatives can, after all, be also used in relative terms in the context of a limited application of time and space. This could easily have led the followers of that holy personage to believe that he was the best and holiest for all ages and for all times to come. To genuinely believe in this should not be considered an offence against others. A civilised attitude would require that such issues should not be abused to create friction amongst religions. That exactly is the true import of the admonition of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, quoted above. If adherence to this principle of humility and decency is adopted by all religions, the world of religious controversy would be the better for it. <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome back to the channel. Today we're in the studio as you can see, so we'll be having loads of interesting debates and discussions here in the studio. Um, today I'm joined in the studio with Rizwana Hanif, um, who is originally from the US um, and she's a trained speech and language therapist uh, and she's working in the UK as a therapist. Uh, today we'll be discussing a controversial topic, um, very common, uh, commonly discussed in Europe and in the UK, which is the topic of hijab, and more specifically with the recent French elections, um, a little bit about that perspective. But first, today, if we can, um, if I can first ask, you know, Rizwana, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, a bit about your background. Um, yeah, you've, my accent will betray me right away. And you've <laughs> said most of it, um, Anne-Marie. But um, yeah, I've been in the UK for seven years now, but born in Pakistan and raised in the US. So I hold a lot of those kind of um, biases, I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah, and working in the NHS currently. Oh, yes. Yeah. As, and that's as a speech and language therapist, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's right. Did you work at all in the US as a speech and language therapist? Um, or Just briefly. So okay. it was still in training, but um, bread and butter work was done here in the UK. Okay. Amazing. Okay. So as I mentioned, so we, uh, I thought it'd be an interesting kind of um, episode to, to talk a little bit about the hijab, which is always quite a controversial topic. It's always, it's quite frequently in the media, especially in the run up to elections. 
Um, and uh, as you know as well, there were some recent elections in France in April this year where um, it became quite a topic of contention again um, with the two main candidates, uh, Macron and Le Pen, who were the two kind of who were kind of running off and debating against each other and the mm. issue of hijab and halal meat and just generally Muslims in France was a big topic of debate that was thrown around a lot. So I thought it would be nice to kind of start off with a video. Um, and it's essentially a, a video in which the journalist is interviewing a couple of Muslim women um, about that in the run up to the election, which has already happened in April. But yeah, let's let's have a look and see what they say. Presidential vote. Le Pen wants to ban Muslim women from wearing the Islamic headscarf in public spaces, but not other religious symbols such as the Jewish kippah. She promises to fight Islamist ideologies that she calls totalitarian. In the hope of keeping Le Pen out of power, Turadek says she will vote for Macron, but only begrudgingly. Clearly my identity is being instrumentalized in the public space. People apply political logic to something that is not political at all, that is intimate, that is personal. Wearing the veil really is a very personal choice, and it is at no time a political choice. The president's track record on Islam has left her deeply dis. Okay, yeah. So, um, so what do you think about her um, kind of basically mentioning that it's a personal choice and it's always kind of brought into the perspective of being a political choice? What do you? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, they, they meaning the French um, politicians, have chose to look at hijab as a completely political symbol, um, particularly mm. in the public sphere. And just seeing those women and realizing that they definitely have a really hard choice to make or had a hard choice to make mm. is just, you know, it it's reflective of the world we're in. They had a choice between one form of Islamophobia and another where their um, right to dress as they will yeah. was being a forefront in politics and was yeah. highly questioned. So, um, yeah, it's 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 kind of strange listening to and, and seeing a couple of these videos that I've seen on YouTube of Muslim women talking about this issue because I really have taken it for granted in the UK and yeah. in the US as well, I guess, where it's really <clears throat> like the freedom, <clears throat> the freedom to dress how you want, mm -hmm. you know, regardless of your religious background or your cultural beliefs, you know, yeah. it, you're free to dress as you want. And it's not kind of pulled into the spotlight almost at all, like in terms of the hijab, it's not debated as much here in terms of real life politics. I think so certain things have been debated, like the niqab or the face veil. Mm -hmm. um, but the the kind of basics of yeah. hijab and kind of halal meat and stuff like yeah. that hasn't really been put on the political spotlight as much no, I think yeah you're absolutely right we take for granted that um freedom of religion and it seems like in France they want complete freedom from all religions yeah. <laughs> um so it's a it's a very fine kind of point but it affects as we know disproportionately the Muslim population yeah Muslim absolutely. women absolutely particularly. absolutely yeah um I think I mean she she kind of mentioned that especially in this run-up to this election, mm. that they felt like they were in, in, between a rock and a hard place yes. uh, because Le Pen is, is seen to be more far-right than Macron is. Yes. Um, but they both are um, not very 
kind of friendly towards the whole issue of Islam within the public space as such. Mm. Um, and we'll, we'll show another video where there's another, uh, an, another debate actually going on between the two main presidential candidates where they're discussing the specific issue of hijab. Mm. But I mean, why is the why? I mean, it's quite an important topic, I guess, bec- in France, I guess, because the Muslim population is fairly large. Um, yeah. It's around 9%, I think it was in the most recent statistics in the UK. The Muslim minority population is about 6%. Mm. Germany, I think it was quoted about 8%. Austria mm. was, uh, Austria and Sweden, again, had a very similar percentage, about 8%. Mm. Um, so it doesn't feel like it's like they form much of a large proportion of the population um but they seem quite intent on kind of affecting the muslim community i mean i don't know what do you think what do you think about that yeah i mean i think france's background is largely homogenous mm-hmm. previously and um, previously to the last maybe 30 years or so mm. and this influx of immigrants who are largely muslim um has caught them out in a way they don't know how to apply those same Um, rules that they've had previously Mm. and the way that they're applying them now is just um, it's not working and I think that's really obvious when you look at other western countries responses to France and their their kind of limitations that they've placed in the name of um, secularism yes yes Um, yeah yeah it's it's odd isn't it it's just they haven't quite found the balance no in um (laughs) Hence why it keeps getting debated continuously. Yes. Exactly. Um, but actually, like in terms of the Muslim populations overall in mm. Europe, there are actually countries that have much larger Muslim Muslim minority populations because they're still minorities. But yeah. um, for example, like Macedonia, Georgia, Bulgaria, they they have much larger Muslim population. But it doesn't seem to be as much of an issue in those countries um, compared to in France and in other Western European nations. Um, I know we were discussing this uh, earlier, but I wonder whether it's related to a culture or they're not, as you say, they're not, they're trying to find their middle ground and they're not sure. I don't know. I mean, they're, yeah, they're kicking and screaming, trying to hold on to, you know, the values and the values and what was um, prevalent a hundred years ago. And it's just, um, they have to change with the times, but the way they've changed is not um it's not there's no justice in the way that they've tried to change basically yes. yeah i agree yeah so there were some specific bans that they actually implemented um mm. so in 2011 uh france officially banned the niqab in public and that's enforced with a with a with a with essentially a fine mm. um and then there was later on there was the massive debate about the bikini and it was kind of banned on the beaches on public beaches as a potential alternative as a swimwear um and uh yeah so that was in about in 2016 mm-hmm. um and i think uh later i think we discussed there was an issue of the separatism law in 2001 can you just tell me a bit more about that yep so following on from the ban of um under 18s in schools not being able to attend school with headscarves um in 2021 there was a new anti-separatism law which also included um a caveat that mothers could not accompany their children on school trips um wearing hijab so in a way, they are now um, using that under 18 umbrella and mm. expanding it or trying to expand it to, as we said, fines for women wearing hijab in any public sphere, regardless of age. Um, and it's a slow progression that we can see yeah. um, over time. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, there's been, as you know, there, there have been loads of debates, not just about the clothing side of things, but also about halal and kosher meat as well. You know, as halal and kosher are pretty much the same thing. It's just, um, you know, that they're, they're kind of ascribed to two separate like um, religious groups. So halal would be Muslims and kosher would be Jewish. But it's essentially the same method of slaughter. Mm. Um, and in this year's presidential election in April, that came up as a specific area where they were considering banning it. Um, and again, I, I the question comes in as to why yeah. and I think you did mention earlier about the secularism and social unity in the name of secularism and social yeah. unity they try and implement something that makes society look more homogenous yes exactly that yeah and now they're nitpicking on you know things that are just basics you know yeah and <laughs> trying to remove those in the name of um, equality and um, secularism so it's actually you step back you kind of think this is actually ridiculous i mean hands off my meat hands yeah. off my hijab type <laughs> thing right okay um and what was this concept of less lassite i think you uh, we yes, mentioned this yeah, earlier yeah. so what was that i think it's come in in i've seen it a couple of times being discussed yeah yeah so laicite is just the french concept of secularism right okay um so the separation of church and state and I think originally it was used primarily to get the Catholic Church out of all public spheres in France. So they didn't want the Catholic Church to have any influence in schools, mm. in politics, etc. And as we know, France has a history that's um, entrenched in Catholicism. Mm -hmm. So when that happened, um, they completely broke from any religion um, in any sphere, public sphere. Um, so now they have expanded laicite to, to um, try and apply it to other religions as well. Okay. Um, Even though those religions aren't involved in policy making, which is what I find strange because they don't, <laughs> like there aren't Muslims in, par like, I mean, there are Muslims in their parliament, but they don't try and enact, and enact religious yeah. reformation, as it were, of the yeah. state. I think it stems from the fear, and this is what they always quote as the main reason why they have um, implemented this um, theory of laicite so broadly. Um, they want to combat what they call um, Islamism, mm -hmm. and they want to combat radical Islam. So the way they've done it is in a blanket way to say that, okay, we don't want this to happen at all, so we're going to ban the hijab, yeah. which is really um, extreme. Yeah. It's a form yeah. of extremism in itself, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is, I feel like it's a little bit, in a way, it's kind of, when you're comparing it to the system here, where we have a secularist secularism here as well, a yeah. practice that's formed here as well, but I feel like the culture of the secular secularism in this country mm. is founded more upon um, freedom of religion. And I know during the British Empire, when it was um, when it was in full full motion, that was probably one of the principles that it tried to carry forward throughout mm. the various nations in in, in the empire yeah. of freedom of religion. And I think that has influenced a lot of the secular debate here, where actually secularism is more about trying to provide an equal playing field and not provide a, a, a favoritism yep. you know of yes. one particular religion over another but Absolutely. it's to allow like freedom to do you know practices and live how you wish within the remits of the law so freedom of religion rather than freedom versus religion, From I think religion. You, yes. yeah exactly yeah. yeah it's so ironic that 
you know, we have that concept of secularism, as does, um, as do a lot of countries. Um, but France mm. is, is actively working to not ensure the free practice of religion and actually to um, restrain the rights and freedoms of Muslims and other faiths as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Le Pen, I think one of the, the more controversial statements she had in the debate, which we'll show a video of the viewers um, of what she actually said was when she, cause she kind of echoes this idea of trying to create a more homogenous society of no differences between individual people. It shouldn't yeah. be in the public sphere at all. Mm. Um, and she was definitely of the opinion that we should be banning it altogether in public and that it should, a fine should be issued to anyone who would be wearing mm. a, a hijab in public. I wonder, if, I don't think that, I mean, if it does become into law, I mean, would that really apply to tourists? I don't think so. But anyway, so there is an interesting video where they're kind of debating this. So if we can show the video and then we can chat about it. Mm. So I think that's that's probably a good point to start. So that's kind of a point of contention uh, yeah, between them. Mm. Um, I think that, I mean, Macron had a, a couple of other kind of opinions with regards mm. to restricting certain rights and freedoms of Muslims. But on this debate, on this particular debate with Macron, he stood apart from her and said, I don't think we should ban it. But she, it was kind of worrying this year because Le Pen got so close. Yeah. I mean, the the runoff between the two was really close. Yes. Um, and I mean, from my pers perspective, you know, a, a leader represents her people. So if mm. she, their people, so if, if she managed to get that far, it's because people were voting her in with those views as yeah. well. And she represents the views of the people, you know, uh, uh, by by extension of that. Yes, 100%. It is really worrying because you think that's the political climate now. And if it continues to go down that trajectory, then the right wing is going to be, you know, the only choice potentially yeah. um, in France. And then... The one um, phrase that really struck me from her comments was, um, we need to free women. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's just so funny. Do you need freedom, Rizwana? You need um, freedom from She wants her. to free women by telling us what, how we can dress. And that's exactly um, the yeah. argument that she uses to, you know, springboard her platform of yeah. banning hijab. So it's just a bit, I, I don't think she can see that um dichotomy yes. at all yeah um i think it's kind of it, i suppose it'd be hard for her to see it because she's not with she's not practicing in sure. that area so i suppose yeah so um i think she just sees as you say is all from one angle like mm. she just sees it sort of like an extremist element of uh, the idea that islam is forcing women to yeah. cover up and to dress modestly etc mm. um but actually islam you know as a fundamental truth within the quran as well it doesn't force anyone to do anything mm. it prescribes or uh, has recommendations about certain things but at the end of the day it's up to you if you want to practice those things as a muslim then it recommends those for particular reasons whether it's fasting whether it's praying whether it's wearing a more modest dress but there's no compulsion in religion mm -hmm. you know uh, but you know from her perspective she sees it as it being a compulsion and that islamists are forcing women to do that mm -hmm. um i mean we can go a little bit about like personal choice and personal reasons why we wear the headscarf a bit later but um, it's definitely not something that was forced upon me and forced upon any of my friends, to be honest. But, mm. um, but that's her perception, isn't it? That it's, a yeah. yeah. I think I think we have to we have to see that background and understand it exactly as you said, because mm. 
there are women who are forced. There's no question about it. But as you said, what is what does Islam say? And that's mm-hmm. what we have to look back at. That's what we need to educate um, politicians about. What is um, true Islam say about yes. that um, compulsion? And we know for a fact that um, those women who are subjugated and forced are not following true Islam and they are actually a lot of times culturally influenced. Mm, yes, um, yeah. And yeah. Yes, yes. No, I completely mm. agree. Um, but I can, as I say, I, being from a Western background, being mm. a convert, I can see where she's getting those views from as well. Because, yeah. you know, long ago, I kind of had similar views that hijab and, you know, all of that stuff, headscarves and um, dressing modestly, mm. that was all kind of not forced upon you. I knew that because I had friends who were girls who, you know, who would wear headscarves as well. And they yeah. weren't forced because I knew them personally. But and there was a, a perception that it's part of an oppressive tool mm. to keep Muslim women down. Um, so I can kind of see, I can see where she's coming from or where that perception comes from. Yeah. Um, so, but as we, I mean, we've already talked about, the, you know, where that comes from in terms of their, the founding principles, the French principles of liberté, uh, égalité and fraternity and um, going forward, you know, it's quite different to mm. our kind of, perception of secularism here where it's more freedom of religion rather than freedom from religion it seems you're listening to the voice of islam radio 